Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. I do ask for your prayers. Um, I kind of feel a little guilty leaving my parish, and doing this one-day talk isn't so guilt-ridden as much as I leave on Sunday to go to Jersey to give a three-day talk for the Metuchen Diocese. So uh, my parish's name is St. Basil the Great, and uh, I'm just going to submit my parish to your prayers. So while I'm away from my parish doing these kind of presentations, which I think are important and from the Lord and important to get out there, it's also true I've turned into like an absent dad. You know, you're not around your kids as much, and so I don't want to do that either. So finding that fine line, my bishop has asked me, he said, I give you permission, please share your gifts with the wider church. So he wants me doing this. We agreed on one talk a month. We're get, I'm learning. It's just, we're turning a cruise ship, not a jet ski. We're getting there, okay? If you could just pray for my parish as well. And I've had tons of people praying for you, from priests studying in Rome who were at the Vatican today praying for all of you, to different religious orders and nuns and parishioners and people that I'm a spiritual director for, just so you guys have been prayed for all day. So as you're focusing and listening, someone's interceding on your behalf as well. At this point, I want to talk about the book that I gave to, that I got for all of you. It's, uh, I didn't give it, they got it for you, but I recommended it. <laughs> Wish I could be so generous for all of you. Um, it's called Eating the Sunrise. It's by Christopher West. Those of you who don't know Christopher West, he's probably been the most active uh, mind around John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And like anyone, he started early in his late 30s, and he's matured with his thought and his insights, his ability to convey. So you read books 25 years ago from him, they're just not as good as they are now. I've known him for years, and uh, this book is the best, the finest thing he's ever written. I liked it so much because it combines evangelization, the Eucharist, and our wisdom, beauty-filled response to the LGBTQ community by giving us a beautiful reflection on our embodiment as man and woman. There's a lot of reflections in there on Theology of the Body, but a lot of what I've heard, you're going to be like, he just took it from this book. That's why you get it at the end of the day, all right? not at the beginning. <laughs> you wouldn't have listened. Uh, and full disclosure, because Father Mario likes airing my dirty laundry, um, no, full disclosure is uh, I wrote one of the blurbs at the beginning of the book saying, uh, it's a good book, you should read it. Uh, but so did Mary Healy, so one of your own, she read it as well. And I think if you took time and you poured over and wrestled with this book, not just with your mind, but with your own heart and experience, I think it's only going to bless you and the ministry here in the Archdiocese of Detroit. I think it's only going to bring good things for all of you, really. It's really, really well done. And so I asked him if, you guys, if he could get you guys. And so I've done some work with Christopher West, so I was able to get it at a discounted rate so all of you get one when you leave. So it's an early Christmas gift for all of you, okay? Yeah. The big thank you to the team that brought me in. Uh, they were kind enough to like me in August and said, would you come back in December? I said, no. And, uh, and for whatever reason, Father Mario has some sort of power over me. I say no to people all day long, don't even think twice. He asks me twice, and he kind of blinks his eyes, and I go, okay, fine, I'll go. You know? uh, so uh, he won, he got me back, and I'm really happy to be with all of you today. I've really, really enjoyed it. When this talk is done, I will leave pretty quickly. I wish I could stay and talk, but I didn't book my flights in a smart manner. Uh, and so I got to head out afterwards, all right? So just know that I'm grateful for uh, your attention today. And I hope and pray, and I had the sense as I was looking out that 
uh, the Lord may be doing something in your hearts with this. And uh, please keep putting logs on that fire. Give it time. Give it attention. Bring it to your personal prayer. Bring it to the sacraments. Open up more and more. There's only going to be beauty there. Only beauty. Final talk is Holy Communion. Church is human and divine. So what would it be like if we as a church took seriously that people's hearts are full of desire and pain, but Jesus can handle it all? What if we took seriously that everyone goes to concerts in Detroit or goes to golfing events or on their boats and all the million lakes you have around here or is homeless on the streets or is going to sporting events, that what they're looking for is the infinite? What if we took seriously everyone we meet, whether it's got a big pointy hat on like a bishop or eating out of a dumpster like a homeless person, has a hurting heart. And it's stifling some of the greatest riches that the Lord wants to have poured forth from them. What would it look like if the church was the place where human hearts felt safe and with gentleness were led to the infinite one? Who wouldn't want to go? St. John Paul II document uh, Novo Millennio Innuente. This document was on the new millennium. It was his pastoral plan for the next thousand years. It came out in the year 2000. So what year is it? Okay, how many years is a millennium? So if something hasn't come to fruition in 23 years, we don't need to worry about it. It was meant for a thousand. All right. If I was good at math, I'd have a really cool analogy right there for you, but I don't. But imagine I said one, all right? It's just starting, all right? Now, this document is my favorite document he wrote as Pope. I love it immensely. The first third feels a little out of touch. It's about all the great work the church was doing to help out getting ready for the, two, the year 2000, globally with economic things and other beautiful ministries and things. It's really interesting, but now in year 2023, it's kind of like, why am I reading this? So you could, if you ever get the document, you could skip the first third. The second third and the last part of it he really lays out his pastoral plan. And it's astonishingly beautiful. And he puts the accent mark on two places, even before the sacraments, prayer and holiness. Saying different things like, um, prayer must become a primary place in pastoral planning. So as you at your parishes begin your plans for different years and different seasons, how much is prayer the primary place? Right? Pretty interesting, right? He talks about how holiness is essential to be the church. And he goes on to different things like this. But this is his quote that I wanted to talk about today. To make the church the home and the school of communion. That is the great challenge facing us in the millennium which is now beginning. If we wish to be faithful to God's plan and respond to the world's deepest yearnings. Yearnings, longings, desire, wanting. It pops up again. So he asked for us to become a church of communion. Now this was kind of lost on the American church, this document. Not because anyone's bad, but we were still reeling from Columbine. In the early 2000s, the Boston sex abuse crisis was unveiled. September 11th happened early on. Not to mention the huge part of this document is about prayer in America. As Americans, we love to do. We like to-do lists and getting things done. So there's a lot of factors why this document wasn't really received as fruitfully as some others. But it's just a great point to stop and ask yourself, 
Does my ministry and all the effort I put forth have the goal of communion? Like, is my goal really that people would be living in intimacy with God? And here's the main point for today, and each other. Communion isn't just God alone, it's also with each other. Do our ministries really have that goal? When people turn to us, do they feel like we're the home and school of communion? Or when they turn to us, do they get really good answers? Or when they turn to us, are we just busy? Because for John Paul II, his dream was that we would be the place within all of creation that people could turn to that we'd be the, the home. Remember, home is where you put your sweatpants on? Right? It's where you can relax and you feel safe. The home of what? Communion. Where it's just so natural. It's in the air. And the school of it, teaching people how to live in communion. One of the reasons we're not good at this is, it's been my point kind of all day, is we've simply just forgotten who we are. It's like identity amnesia. We don't know what it means to be human. But this is good news because the church has been saying constantly, and it's the number one quote Pope St. John Paul II put in every single document that he wrote. Gaudium et Spes, point 22. Christ, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Jesus wants to show you who you are and particularly whose you are. So as we draw close to Jesus, what we notice in him is that he's not an isolated being. He's always in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then on top of it, he had deep relationships with people around him, starting with Mary and Joseph. Right? But then he had family and friends. He calls the 12 around him. They're sharing life together. Jesus himself, by living a life of communion, is revealing for us how to be in communion, how to be the church. And it's not obviously as easy as we think, but we understand relationship is a key part of it. And it's not just John Paul II. Here's Pope Benedict, before he was a pope. Man is relational, and his life, his very self, only exists by way of relationship. I, by myself, am not I at all, but am so only in relation to a thou. And it is this thou that makes me myself. Now, it's kind of weird language. I get it, okay? But what's interesting is psychologists have been able to show us that the kid, a little baby's identity, is born from the love of the mom. And we see this all the time. Like, the mom's like, hi, hi. And the baby one day smiles back, and the mom loses her mind. <laughs> but see, the baby smiles back as a way of, oh, how do you learn language? You don't go off into a closet and go, okay, I think I'm going to learn this now. Someone's like, ball, ball. And you're like, Bleh. And then eventually you sound like something like Ball, but mom and dad think you said it perfectly and then tell everything, all the family and relatives. You learn it through imitation. You learn how to put words and sentences together long before you learn grammar. How? By just imitating people around you. You pick it up. 
We're mimicking or imitating creatures. That's not a problem. That's how we were created. After all, Jesus is the reflection of the Father's glory. We're made in his image. This relational component is built into how we're made. You're not weak because you need kind words once in a while. You're not immature because you need someone to say, you're doing a great job. You shouldn't have to grow up from that. You should just have friends and community and fellow disciples who say, great job. That's not like, well, I'm being needy, I should... No. You need people to reflect and reveal your goodness to you. Being a church of communion corresponds to how we are created. Now, this is probably at first going to be the most jarring thing I've said all day, but I hope when I'm done, it's the most healing and beautiful. Right? So let's hope. Huh? Okay. Yeah, everyone's like, buckle up. Okay. <laughs> So aspects of being a church of communion, this notion of being a church of communion, it corresponds to how you and I are created. Remember, we're structurally disproportionate, means, meaning we're intrinsically relational. We, we don't graduate from our poverty. You don't get so holy there's not a need to be loved. There's no such thing as that. Jesus lived in communion. But it goes along how we're created. Original solitude is the word Pope St. John Paul II gives for the story of Genesis chapter 2, where the first human creature is made. That's not really Adam yet. We tend to think that's Adam and then Eve comes later. It's not exactly the way that works in the language. It's just a human creature. So the human being is made first, and there's some things that the scripture texts are present in that John Paul II points out to the church in his theology of the body. He says, we're alone in the visible world. Let's pause there. Meaning, when you look at an animal's body, you don't think, I wonder what their name is, what their hopes and dreams are, what their biggest wounds and struggles are. Because it's an animal. It's like, oh, that's Fido. He's great. He sits, he comes, he's happy to see me. I love that dog. But when you meet a Sarah or a Courtney or a Jim or a Bill, you're meeting an unrepeatable, irreplaceable, indispensable, unique person. John Paul II goes on to say, in original solitude, we discover a unique and exclusive relationship with God. Let those words soak in into a holy hour and your mind will be blown. Each one of you has a unique, unrepeatable, and exclusive relationship with God. I can't talk to you like the way God talks to you because you have an unrepeatable, exclusive relationship. Now, with someone you may trust, it's like giving them a VIP pass behind the concert, behind the veil, and see what's going on behind the curtain. They may get to know, but only because you choose to disclose that. Original solitude means each person, by the fact that they're created, God is saying, I will share something of my own life with this person that no one else will get. We see that manifested and lived out in the communion of saints. How different is, we're in Detroit, Solanus Casey compared to Thomas Aquinas? But each one of them brings something of the life and heart of God into the world. Because everyone is a unique, unrepeatable, exclusive relationship with God. And so those of us who are really beautifully pious in here, we're going, oh, this is the best. Right? There's nothing really scandalous about this, Father Ryan. I'm liking this moment. Keep going. 
In God's plan for your fulfillment, God was not enough. God's plan for your fulfillment was done in such a way that God alone is not enough. Because we hear this phrase right after all these beautiful insights. It is not good for man to be alone. And man here, I mean every human person, not just men can't live without women because women make life more beautiful. It's every human being. When God was creating us, he, in his dream, it was never going to be just us and God. It was God, us, and each other. It was always meant to be divine and human. We kind of say in the church, the vertical and horizontal ways of life. His plan is that you would be your brother and sister's keeper, and they would be yours. In fact, this is his favorite way to love. God's favorite way to love is through each other. That he would bring up and raise up people in your life who love you. After all, the idea was that when you were most vulnerable, your love and need would be met by people who were supposed to love you the most, namely mom and dad. You ever seen a mom and dad like just go nuts about their kid? And on the outside you go, I mean, I'm sure he's a great kid. <laughs> he's not my kid. <laughs> or someone's like, oh, we got to show you photos. And you go, oh, yeah. And you see the beauty of the kid, but you realize, I can't even access the amount of love that they have for the kid. We are meant to experience our identity and love, not just with God alone, but through each other. Now, this is important. This is called original unity. This is what John Paul II says about origin and unity. Now we have Adam and Eve, and it says, She therefore finds herself in her own gift of self when she has been accepted in the way which the Creator willed, namely for her own sake. So when Eve gives herself to Adam and he loves her for her sake, not simply the pleasure he bring, she brings into his life and joy and beauty, but he realizes all of this is a gift because she's so beautiful. And he loves her in return in the same way. He loves her for her sake. He loves her in a way that says, I want to bless you with my existence. She goes, I want to bless you with my existence. In doing that, that's how she finds who she is. In giving herself. And in giving herself as a gift, when she's received as a gift, she discovers in his eyes, in his heart, and there in his body, in the way he looks and hears and smiles, I am good. Remember that kid discovers, like when your mom smiles, hi. Original solitude and original unity don't cancel each other out. It's not one or the other. It's meant to be both. We need time alone with our creator in that unique, unique, unrepeatable, exclusive relationship, of course. But there are real things that are meant to awaken in us through our human relationships that is still God at work. He created us this way. But he meant that both would come together. And this, so I put this kind of litany together. History of not God alone. <laughs> I'm sure there's a more grammatical way to say this. Eden, like I said, wasn't just alone with God. They were with each other. What was paradise? Paradise. Sometimes married couples will say, ha, ha, I know what it is. Like, no, no, it's together. 
Because sometimes things are hard in a fallen world. Before there was sin, God created you and me that we'd be with God and each other in perfect harmony. He then forms a people of God known as Israel, not just individuals, but a people, a nation. Once again, human formation, human community. Jesus was born into a family. He called 12 disciples and sent them out by two. And in heaven, it's not just not you and God. It's also a communion of the saints. In fact, one of Thomas Aquinas' writings suggests that one of the reasons we celebrate heaven is because we get to see each other as we were meant to be. Tom, right? So Tom, when I see you, God willing, that we're both in heaven, one of the reasons for me to cry, celebrate, and join the angels is because I'll finally see you. I'll try my hardest now, but I don't actually see you. But in heaven, when all has been last made manifest and we are unified to the love of the Trinity, we will see and be seen as God created us to. And it'll be one of the reasons joy erupts from our bellies. Because you're so beautiful. You are enough. You're so good. You're good in a way no one else can be good because you share in the unrepeatable, exclusive, irreplaceable image of God that you are. But part of it is that we will be seen not just by God, by each other. Do you feel how radical this is by sometimes the unspoken message that we carry around out of shame in our bones at times? I just prayed more. And maybe that's the case. You, need, you only know you. Maybe you're like, boy, I, don't, I have been really slacking. And maybe we do need to get alone with God. Maybe we're distracted in our prayer time. Advent's a good time to sure these things up a little bit. But maybe what we need is a good night with friends or a meaningful coffee date or just bundle up in a walk outside with someone where you just share life together. If our message to the world is you should just pray more, It's not really the biblical revelation. That's a slice of it. After all, when God came to save us, he came as one of us. So within the human family was erupting this divine compassion and life and love from within us. After all, we just went to Mass. The sacraments that we receive are meant to build up this kind of human community. So that people would see those of us who are human living out the gospel and say, they're amazing. What's going on with them? Not necessarily because we're virtuous, although that helps. But remember the second talk. Because in our poverty, our weakness, our needs, our dependency, we've learned to open that up to God and to each other. Because we've learned how to love each other even when we're weak, even when we don't have what it takes. And we realize, well, that person might not give us what we need right now, but doesn't define them. We may still need someone else to come with those gifts because we need to get the mission done, but we don't disregard this person now because we realize there's more to them. They're in an exclusive relationship with God by their very existence. And baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, prayer in the Holy Spirit, the scriptures, the saints, and all of us are meant to help that grow in them. Church would be really different. I guess I could have just said that at the beginning and saved some slides. (laughs) 
I figured some of your hearts may be saying this. Be practical, please. He's like, this is all great. Give us the three steps. <laughs> Let me say this. You're not Ikea furniture. <laughs> There's no five steps and then you'll be happy. I could write a book like that and you'd all buy it and then be like, these are five steps to happiness. I'll make a lot of money. But it begins with the false premise, namely that you're a problem to be put together. The second false premise is that formulas are what the heart is seeking. You ever heard a love song like, oh, I just can't wait for a formula? <laughs> the human heart is looking for deep, abiding love that doesn't balk and isn't scandalized by brokenness and weakness. But when your brokenness and weakness or vulnerabilities are on display, that you would pull out what is richest in Jesus' heart, and that would be radiated through others. So this man to the side here that you can't see very well in our gymnasium this afternoon, his name is Dr. Conrad Bars. Raise your hand if you've heard of Dr. Conrad Bars. Two, going strong, great. Three, Father Mario on the back. Did you raise your hand because you heard my talk in August? Okay, you read his book afterwards, A plus for you. Good little student you are, nice one. All right, Dr. Conrad Bars was a psychologist. He was in the uh, concentration camps in World War II. He got out. He was a consultant uh, with, uh, for John Paul II on love and responsibility. Him and another doctor, I can always mispronounce her name, but it's like Anna Turui or something like this. The two of them did a lot of psychology together using uh, the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. He moved to the States, had a daughter named Susan. She lives in Texas and continues his ministry. He wrote several books. The main one is called Born Only Once. Uh, and he gave it to Mother Teresa, and she said, this book puts language to everything my order is attempting to do. Everyone's like, write down the born only ones, Christmas gift, thank you. It's short, narrow, fits in the stocking. You ever hear the phrase affirmation? We use it all the time now. The origin is from him, but he did not mean what we hear it, how we use it nowadays. Affirmation for him literally meant by the way, Warner one says, affirmation for him literally meant you feeling worthwhile, and it starts with and is dependent on another person who can, and we're going to get in that in a second. Affirmation for him was the ability, if I was going to affirm you, I would convey to you in such a way that you would feel firm in your unique, unrepeatable identity. That's how he defined affirmation is the idea to reaffirm in you that you're a gift. Not just by saying words. In fact, he says words are the cheapest way to do it and sometimes the least effective. But that he says someone who themselves is affirmed, it will radiate out of them. That when you're around them, you'll sense their whole heart just turn towards you and rejoice in you. I hope you've had people and you do already in your life who can be that for you. Where's my Franciscan buddy at? Father Matthew, there he is. We were talking earlier about a priest named Father Bob McCreary. Father Bob McCreary was a Capuchin Franciscan, died recently. He was like a hero to me. This man, like, he, you would just start crying around him because you just know how to be around someone so gracious. The joke at the seminary was he's the very man whose presence was healing. But he just bent over backwards to communicate with every fiber of his being that you were good and wanted and loved. 
Secondarily, he would then give some coaching and some encouragement to help you overcome some sins. But he knew the great truth that if you could be seen and loved and you could really feel that and take that in, your heart would no longer want the counterfeit. Your heart would want what was great and beautiful and holy because it was set free from insecurity. So you feeling this way is dependent on another. Oh, great. Isn't that bad news for all of us in some way? First off, one of the others is going to be Jesus through prayer. So that's going to be good news. But I promise you, he's trying to press it into your life through people at different times. But we might have missed it. So what does this person be able to do? First, they're able to be aware of your unique goodness and worth. Not for anything you do or will do in the future. Now that I'm a, a pastor, I'm also a boss. I have 28 employees. We don't have a school. And I have to catch myself treating them like their value is how well did they do their ministry. So I'm like, after all, I pay them. All right? And we have a signed contract. And I will evaluate them twice a year for points of growth and things they've done well already. So it's like, well, what am I doing? Part of it is what creates a fair environment. Employer-employee is a kind of relationship. Part of that's true. But I have to be careful that I don't let that exhaust the totality of the person who's there. So, for example, I have a, uh, one of the front office workers. She had a hip surgery and she's been out for a while. So I don't call her every day because that's annoying. But once a week, I'll call her or I'll record a video and just from someplace on the property, just say, thinking of you, hope you're well, checking in on you. And I intentionally don't ask about doctor appointments and when she's coming back. She has a supervisor to worry about the medical leave and disability and all those things. They can worry about that. But just trying to see her or communicate she's a person, that she has goodness and worth independent of whether or not she's working for me. So the first thing in order for someone to be affirmed is they have to meet someone who knows how to see and look upon them with worth and goodness independent of the effect they have in the world, just in themselves because God chose that this person should exist at this time, and in his providence, he's in your life on this day, on this time. Second thing this person, you, an affirming person will do, will, is moved by and delights in your goodness without desiring to use or possess your goodness. We go to number three as well, put it together. Allow their body to reveal this delight through visible reactions. This is really important. You ever walk into a room and someone already looks ticked off? And you're about to have a meeting with them and you're like, oh, gosh. And you're like, everything okay? They're like, yeah, why? You're like, oh, yeah, 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 just don't want to. I hope someone calls me in an emergency immediately. Your bodies are constantly speaking a language. Most of you today have been looking at me and smiling and doing those things, make you feel really good. It's been great. But imagine if you all were like, oh, Looking at your watches, I'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> when you see someone's unique, unrepeatable worth and goodness, you know if you're really seeing it because it's going to physically affect you. You will be moved by this and your psychomotors will start moving in a certain direction to show it. Here's what it looks like in the movies in slow motion. And their arms are out. It's going to be the world's biggest. In I don't know why the leg's involved. Because <laughs> your whole body communicates. But when you'll see someone, 
hey, that little gesture matters. Your body communicates it. Similarly, if you come up to talk to me and you're like, hey, do you have a minute? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? No, I'm good. How about you? Oh, that sounds really tough. Yeah. I'll pray for you. Conrad Barr says, if we can be aware of someone's uniqueness and we can enjoy it, not try to possess it as our own, it's theirs, and we can reveal that it exists, someone who receives this, this will be some of the things that pop out of them. The recipient of this kind of love, what they awaken to their desire to become fully alive and desire more of this love. When someone experiences someone delighting in them, wholeheartedly being present. And by the way, it's not always happy things. Someone may be telling you something awful and you can get upset on their behalf. That's terrible. And they'd be like, no, no, it's okay. It's like, no, it's not. You should never be treated that way. As you fight for their goodness, they're now seeing, oh, I'm worth fighting for. So affirmation isn't just like, hey, you're so sweet. It's just being moved by their goodness, whether that goodness is being honored or hurt. You're going to have different reactions on their behalf. But when they feel it, when they see that that's coming from you, they're going to desire to become more fully alive and to become like this love. They want more of this love. Identity and infinite. They're going to say to themselves, if I'm loved right now like this and I'm a sinner and I'm broken, how much more when I start growing? And now what's going to be born in them is this desire to become whole. Second, a peaceful acceptance just how much they can't love perfectly. They need help. Poverty redemption needs. When they realize, man, this person is loving me securely, safely, generously. Gosh, I, I so lack this. But now it's not a cause for shame. It becomes a peaceful realization. Oh, I need help. I really need to ask for more resources, lean on some people, open this up to others. And then third, they will desire to give this freely given love to others. They themselves will become a gift. Now imagine if all this took place surrounded, so all of this affirmation, this communion, was surrounding an RCIA evening. Imagine if this was the community they walked into as a youth group. High schoolers walked in, all the adult leaders we're working on this to receive this in their own lives and to really open up to try to embody this for every teen they saw. What if in your marriages you were working on this? What if this became the church? A church that could commune with not just God, but with one another. After all, your identity as church is to be the image of God in the world. God is a communion of persons. We're meant to embody that. What if that's precisely what the Eucharist wants to accomplish in you as you bring these needs and desires? I would love to be loved like this. Open that to the Lord. Bring it to communion. What if the next time someone comes to meet with you, you're like, this is a person in a unique, unrepeatable, exclusive relationship with God and they come to talk to you about prayer, I'm about to be let in to the Holy of Holies. How much more reverent would we treat people? 
my little aside here for just a second before we wrap up is, in the state of Ohio, we just lost a big pro-life vote and everything with called Issue 1. And so we now have the most radical, well, it will go into effect, most radical state constitution supporting abortion out of all 50 states in Ohio of all places. Anyways, but how can we support pro-life initiatives with the babies we can't see when we can't even affirm the people we do see? How loud and gross are we trying to stand up for vulnerable human life when the human life right in front of us, we don't even know how to treat. We don't know what we look at. We don't even know what we're seeing when we look at someone. Good news. Jesus' job description is to give sight to the blind. He, gives, he helps the deaf hear. If you feel numb and in a tomb, he helps the dead to come alive. This is his job description. This was who he is. He loves doing this. What kind of savior wouldn't enjoy saving? What kind of redeemer wouldn't enjoy redeeming? It delights him. And so when the church regains her humanity again, when we begin to recognize we are not defined by long hours and to-do lists, we are not defined by what other people think, we are not defined by what we even think of ourselves, that what defines us, what says who we are, is Jesus. And that we have access to him, not when we feel safe, but when we're vulnerable. That the sign that we're meeting Jesus is not that we become neutral, but that we become inflamed with desire. And that desire takes us all the way to God. And so you have a book that's going to help you do it. You have a list of quotes that I recommend you put. And anytime you have to teach or present, grab one of those quotes and put it up there for them. And keep the conversation going among you and in your parishes and ministries. So that people can start hearing this and thinking about it. And together, you guys can start becoming a really human church. Which is what God's always interested in becoming. He's always becoming flesh. He's always moving toward us, never away from us. And so we can start becoming who we've always been. The body of Christ. So let's end with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, send your blessing upon them. You are a good father. You delight in their masculinity and femininity. You have tender desires to pour yourself into the places where we feel so weak and poor. Help us, through the power of Jesus, to have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that aren't cold or hardened, but vulnerable so that your love may touch us and move through us, and we would mediate your divine love to the world. Through the intercession of Mary and Joseph, may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for a great day. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.